0: Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, <clears throat> excuse me, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth And the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, and of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds the, of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated. Let's pray one more time together. Our Lord and our God, As we approach this passage of scripture, Lord, we we get a a picture of who you are in relationship with with mankind and with Adam and, and by extension with us. Lord, we see how you created man, how you cared for man, and Lord, how you called man to obedience. Lord, I I pray that as we consider these things this morning that you would help us to see, Lord, how, how you have created us and, Lord, how you care for us and how you are calling us to obedience. But I pray also that with the conviction of the Holy Spirit you would help us to see that we have not obeyed as we should, that none of us have obeyed. Lord, that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, the one who did obey for us. The one who is punished in our place for our disobedience. Lord, would you cause these glories of the gospel to resonate in our hearts as we see what you are calling us to, and, and Lord, the, the blessing which you shower upon us. Lord, blessings of your common grace, and especially blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, you are going to hear a sermon without sin. I've been at this church for almost eight years, and and this is the first time that I will have preached a sermon without sin. Of course, this doesn't mean that the, the preacher standing before you is without sin. I'm the same sinner that you see standing here every week. But what I'm saying here is that there is no sin mentioned in this text. We're continuing our study of Genesis and we've, we've already looked at the introduction from Genesis 1.1 to Genesis 2.3 which details the first week when God created the heavens and the earth and, and all that is in them and then how God rested on the seventh day. And now we're going to be focusing on the creation of men. We've, we've seen that a little bit from, from Genesis 1.26 and 27 but, but now Moses here expands for the, expands on the the creation of man and what that entails here in the passage before us in in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. sin is not mentioned in this text because, again, sin doesn't exist yet except as a potentiality. Man at this point in the Genesis narrative is sinless. Genesis 2.4 marks the beginning of the first Toledot, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. This is the first of the 10 sections of the book of Genesis. If you remember, we talked about that back in the introduction. Each section of Genesis begins with the words, these are the generations of. This happens 10 times in Genesis. For example, in 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. Or 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. Now the NASB and the NIV translate the word "toledot" as "account." This is the account of the heavens and the earth, and, and it makes sense that they would they would use um, that word because because each time that this is introduced, this each new section is is like a, a a smaller story as part of the bigger story of Genesis and of the bigger story of redemption history. But here the the word. It, it, but the word Toledo is best translated as, as generations, as you see in the ESV, or as, as offspring. Now, this section, this first Toledo, extends from Genesis 2.4 to 4.26. It details the events leading up to the fall and the events that take place soon after the fall. Genesis chapter 2 deals with the events of the fifth and the sixth days. Genesis 2 really needs to be closely read with Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's focusing on, at first on the, the description of God's creation of the land before the creation of man, and then with the creation of man, and then, as we'll see, with the covenant of works. Again, this morning, we're going to be focusing just on verses 4 to 17, which really are, are about the, Lord's, the Lord God's relationship with man. So, we have three sections that, that I've divided this into. I believe that, that naturally pull, fall out of this, this text. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, we see the Lord God's creation of man in the garden. Then, verses 8 to 14, we see the Lord God's care for man in the garden. And then, in verses 15 to 17, we see the Lord God's covenant with man in the garden. So, first of all, in, in verses uh, 4 to 7, again, the, the Lord God's creation. Of man in the garden, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the the beginning, the first words in this in this section are: "These are the generations of," "These are the generations of." Again, this is best translated as, as generations or offspring, and and it usually refers to people. But the difference here, of course, is is that the ancestor is not a person, but the heavens and the earth. Moses is telling us here that that human history has its origin in the Lord God's creation. That, that, the, that man has its, his beginnings. Men and women find their beginning in the creation of the heavens and the earth. So the purpose of, of this section, this, this Toledot, is the depiction of human life before and after sin. But again, in our passage from this morning, there there is no sin. Man has not yet sinned. It hasn't happened yet. Man is in his state of innocence. Augustine explained that that in this state of innocence, man was able to sin and able to not sin. That's what what Paul is saying in Romans 6 when he talks about us being being slaves to sin. But before this, before the, the fall happened... Adam was free from sin. Adam Adam and and Eve were the only ones in all of human history who had truly free will. They were the only ones that were were actually able to choose the good or to choose the evil. Because they chose evil. All of their, their progeny. Every generation from their, their first children all the way through down to us, we have all been bound in sin. We've been born in sin because of Adam's sin. But again, here, before describing the creation of man in innocence, Moses tells us what the Lord God had done prior. I need to stop here for a moment and, and point out something very important. Just flip back with me in your Bible for a second to to the the beginning of Genesis. Look at, at, just scan through um, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. And what is the name that is used for God here in this passage? God, right? Just God. If you remember, as I explained, that that God there, the the Hebrew word that's translated God is, is Elohim, um, Elohim is, is used 35 times in Genesis 1, 1 2, 2, 3. As we talked about before, Elohim is, is a plural Hebrew word with a singular meaning. And Moses chooses to use the word Elohim there because he wants to emphasize God's omnipotence. Because he wants to emphasize the, the transcendence of God and the power of his spoken word. Now look back at, at Genesis 2.4. And what what name do you see used for God there? The Lord God. The Lord God. Moses has added the the word Lord, the name Lord. Now, as I hope you're aware that the, when you see Lord like that in your Bible, in, in all caps with the, the, um, the O-R-D being in smaller capitalized letters, that that's, that's the word Yahweh. Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name for God. And so, so the, these two names for God together, uh, Yahweh Elohim, are used 20 times in, in this passage uh, between in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, 20 times, with one notable exception, the beginning of, of chapter 3, and verses 1 to 5, and, and we'll, we'll deal with this in more detail later, but, but what, what do you see, what name do you use for God there in, in Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 5? Well, in, verse, sorry, in verses um, 2 to 5, First, you have, the, you have the description, the Lord God. That's given by Moses, the narrator. And then when you have the dialogue between the serpent and Moses, it reverts back just to God. Now, these, these things are, are not small details. What, what's happening here in that, in that passage is that, is, is that by Eve and the serpent only using Elohim, what you're seeing is that, that humanity's relationship with the covenant Lord is under assault. Humanity's relationship with the covenant Lord is under assault. And again, we're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks. But back here in in chapter 2, verse 5, Moses describes the land before the creation of man. where there is no shrubs of the field and no plants of the field. He's saying that there are no cultivated plants. And Moses here gives a reason. Because it had not rained yet. And because man was not there to cultivate the ground. Now, it's often supposed that that it did not rain until the flood because we read in Genesis 7-4 where the Lord says to Noah that he will send rain upon the earth. But I think, and and many commentators say, that that's actually reading too much into that statement. We can't necessarily assume that that it had not rained, but we know that at this point at least, it had not yet rained. And this here refers to the creation uh, as we read about in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was was hovering over the face of the water. So it's going back all the way to the beginning, talking about how God God created the creation, and and then we'll see how how God put man as the the pinnacle of his creation on the earth. Notice it says here in in verse 6 that your Bible probably says that there was a mist. Um, going up to water the earth. But, but, but this translation has been challenged. There's the general conclusion by most commentators that this actually refers to underground springs that, that had come up to, to water the earth. And it was these springs of the earth that, that at the time of the flood also not only did it rain at the time of the flood, but, but the springs of the earth also burst forth, causing the earth to, to flood. Then in verse 7, we see the Lord God's creation of man. Again, this, this builds on what we read earlier in chapters 1, verses 26 and 27, where the, the creation of man is, is the crescendo of, of God's creative acts, of, of all the things that, that, that God did in, in, in making the heavens and the earth with, with just a word. The, the greatest, the pinnacle of his creation is human beings, men and women, us, made in the image of God. But in those verses, in in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it's the nouns, image, and likeness likeness that that relate man to God. But here, notice in in chapter 2, verse 7, that it's not the nouns, but the verbs. Those two verbs there, that that the Lord God formed the man from the, the dust of the ground, and that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, making him a living creature. And so with the the picture of, of formed, it, it's it, it paints the picture of a, of an artisan, skillfully at a, at his craft and and sovereignly molding the dust of the earth into a human being, and then with the, with. Uh, we think of verses here like, like Psalm 90, 94, verse 9. He that formed the eye, does he not see? Or Isaiah 64, 8. But now, Lord, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. So that's what's implied when he uses the word formed. But when, when, it, when Moses uses the word breathed, it, it's It's warmly intimate. This this is the, the, the Lord God face to face with the man who he has made in his image. That this is an intimate and close relationship. Because of the breath of God, man becomes a living creature. Donald Gray Barnhouse says that man lives by inhaling, the Lord God gives by exhaling. We are creatures and he is the creator. And all of this is the incomparable blessing that, that, that man enjoys in his innocence. But these blessings that we read off here uh, of of creation in, in, in chapter two verses five to seven are a stark contrast with the effects of the fall, especially those in, in chapter three, verses eight to twenty four. So the, the, the shrubs and plants that we read of here give, give way to thorns and thistles. There, there is no rain on the ground here, but in, in, in Genesis 7, 4, God says, I will send rain. And he sends a lot of rain. Here there, there's no man yet to, to, to work the ground. But then, this, then you see man cast from the garden to toil and labor by the, the sweat of his brow. You see man created from dust, but then you see man returning to dust. You see man as a once living creature, now dead. And worst of all, you see man once in an intimate relationship with God, but now separated from God. And all of Adam's offspring would experience the same consequences. All of us. We all work by the, the sweat of our brow. We, we, we all have been, have been cast from the garden. We all, apart from the work of God, are, are dead men and dead women. And, and all of us, apart from the work of God, are separated from God. But again, remember, at this point, the fall hasn't happened yet. The, the man is only enjoying the blessings of the Lord. So following his description of, of God's creation of man in verses 4 to 7, Moses now describes how the Lord God provided for man by planting a garden. So we've seen how, we've seen the Lord God's creation of man in the, in the garden. Now we're going to see the, the Lord God's care for man in the garden. In verses 8 to 14, Moses co- provides quite a bit of detail about the garden. Here we see the bountiful blessings of the Lord God's providential care for, for man who is made in his image. He planted a garden. Notice here from verse 8 that the, that the garden is in, is in Eden. It, it is not the garden of Eden. The, the Hebrew word, the, the noun Eden means delight. Further evidence of the blessings of, of the Lord God in providing this, this garden. Now, though there are places in the scriptures where the garden is simply referred to as Eden, apparently Eden was a larger locale, and, and this garden was located in it. You can see this also from verse 10, that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It's also referred to the, the garden of the Lord. And you see that in, in Genesis 13:10 uh, and Isaiah 51:3. This is God's garden. Now, the idea of the garden of God is, is common in ancient um, Near Eastern mythology. We've been talking about how, how the creation account here of Genesis is, is directly contrary to the, the pagan creation myths of the nations that were surrounding Israel. And so, so in again, the, this, this imagery of the, the garden of, of God, small g God in, in Middle Eastern and Near Eastern mythology is, is common. It, it depicts the garden as the residence of, of the pagan deities. And like Eden, it's often described as having abundant waters and and fruitful plants and precious stones. But in the scriptures, the Lord God does not dwell in the garden. God does not dwell in the garden. Rather, it is the place where he meets with man. This garden is described as being in the east. And this, this, so, th- this garden is not merely symbolic. Th- this is, this, this garden had a physical location on the earth. Now, it could have been in the eastern part of, of Eden, or it, it could have been east of Canaan. Now, the latter is, is more likely, given the names of two rivers that are mentioned, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that, that have their source in, in modern-day Turkey and flow through Syria and Iraq and into the Persian Gulf. And that is east of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. There's another river, the, the Gihon, which is, it, some commentators have suggested, is, is actually the Nile, because it, it refers to Cush, which is Ethiopia. And notably, we'll see when we talk about God's covenant with, with Abraham in, in, in probably several months, that, that all three of those rivers are listed as boundaries of the land that is promised, or is promised to Abraham and to his offspring. So so again, we can have these theories about about where the garden is, but we can't really know where Eden was because the the flow of those rivers and the the earth's geography would have changed significantly during the flood. We know that there was plenty of water there, which is vitally important important in that arid location. We also read that there was plenty of gold and, and precious jewels. Gold, delium, and, and onyx stone are mentioned. Now, we don't know what, what delium is, but, but golden onyx, we can read about it in several places in the scripture. And, gold, and, we, and we, a lot of commentators, I think they're right in this, that it says that this golden onyx point to the temple. Point to the temple, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, but we think about in the temple, gold overlaid all the furnishings of the temple. And both both gold and, and onyx figured prominently on the ephod and of the breastplate of the high priest on which were the names of the twelve on which were engraved the, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And, and so again many commentators see these details and, and also the fact that that this is where God met with man as pointing to the temple of God. When you read the descriptions of the temple in Exodus, there's there's many parallels here. And so, so this, is, this refers to the, the Lord God's fatherly care, to his, of his intimate love for man, for his creation. Later prophets in the, in the Bible, Ezekiel and Joel and, and Isaiah, point backwards to the Garden of Eden as the land that is promised to Israel. And John points forwards to the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, describing many of the same features. Abundant waters and and gold and precious jewels, but especially the tree of life in the middle of the city. And so with that, let's consider the the trees that are in the garden of God from verse 9. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Not only were these trees beautiful to, to the eyes, but they provided food that was delicious on the palate. Now here in the Okanagan, we, we live in the fruit basket of Canada. Now I don't, I don't know what your favorite fruit is, but for me it's a toss up between mangoes and cherries and peaches. Now we can't get mangoes here, apart from maybe Costco um, in, in the winter time, but but let's just think about the, about the cherries for a moment. We're coming up on cherry season, and and BC produces eighty percent of of Canada's cherries, and, and and a significant portion of them are grown right here in the Okanagan. If you want some delicious cherries, come July. You, you need to talk to the Kuypers or to the Hymans, and and they will provide you with some delicious cherries. Maybe I get a few for a plug, but <laughs> but but. The, just thinking in the summertime of sitting down on a, on a warm summer's day and enjoying a bowl full of cherries. Or, or thinking about eating a peach. I'm getting hungry here, eating a peach that is so juicy that, that you have to lean forward over the sink so that the juice doesn't drip down your arms. But as as delicious as that fruit is, this fruit that we can enjoy right here, it, it really doesn't compare. To, to the fruit that was, was grown in, in the garden. We can only imagine how good that, that fruit must have tasted. Now, there, there was no need for pesticides there because there were no pests. There, there was no need for fertilizer because the, the, the soil was so rich. And these were trees that, that had come up, planted there by, by God himself for his people to enjoy. And with that, it, it also makes me think of, of that, that meal. We're not going to be able to taste the fruit that was in the Garden of Eden, but one day we are going to be able to, to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, I, I think you could, you could argue that even the, the fruit in the, the, tree of the, the, the trees of that garden were, were nothing compared to what the, the food would be like on that table on that day. But all of this extravagant blessing and God providing for the the needs of man makes the serpent's accusation that the Lord God is holding out on Adam and Eve absolutely ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Moses then directs our attention to to two trees in particular, The, the two trees that are in the center of the garden. The first is the tree of life, And the tree of life provides life because of the divine planter. Because God conferred it. It wasn't wasn't a magical tree. God created this this tree to be able to, to produce life for his men and his women. There's no suggestion in this text that man was created immortal, but that man received immortality from the Lord by giving him access to the tree of life. The other tree in the garden, of course, is the, the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. There's all kinds of theories as to what the nature of that that knowledge is, and some would suggest it was sexual knowledge. Well it can't be that because because prior to the fall, men and women are, are given the command to be fruitful and multiply as a blessing from the Lord. Some would suggest that it's moral discernment. Well, that can't be the case either, because because obviously man would have been able to tell the difference between obedience and disobedience. Otherwise, there'd be no point in God giving him a command. It's more likely that, that it's, it's divine wisdom, the desire to, to be like God and to act with moral autonomy. Again, we don't know really the, the full extent of, of what this means, but, but there's a su- suggestion in Genesis 3.22 that where apparently eating the fruit of this tree gave a kind of knowledge that was was meant to be for God alone. But we do, we do also know that, that, that like the tree of life, this tree was a demonstration of man's dependence upon the Lord God. It was a, a demonstration of the Lord God's care for man. And so the Lord God made the garden and made man and placed man in the garden and cared for man in the garden so we've seen the lord god's creation of man in the garden we've seen the lord god's care for man in the garden and so now let's let's finally look at the lord god's covenant with man in the garden from verses 15 to 17 in verse 15 moses repeats that the lord god took the man and put him in the garden He put him there with a job to do, to to work and to keep the garden. Possibly, uh, well, contrary to popular opinion and possibly contrary to your attitude as you drive to work tomorrow morning, work itself is not a curse. Work is not a curse. Work would be cursed. Just as the relationship with man and woman would be cursed and childbirth would be cursed after the fall, but work was given here before the fall. Work here is a blessing. It it gives man purpose. Again, contrary to the the pagan creation myths where man is is created for servitude, the biblical account um, portrays God as the provider for man's needs. And here, including the noble fruitful labor of working the ground. And so part of man's work was also to keep the garden, to guard the garden. Maybe he should have been guarding it from snakes. If you're a Christian, if you're here sitting here as a Christian this morning, your work has now been redeemed and is becoming redeemed. Redeemed. Your vocation, your calling is provided for you to give you an opportunity to serve and to glorify the Lord God. We're also going to have work to do in the new heavens and in the new earth. You're not just going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. You're going to have meaningful labor to engage in, but gone is any shred of the curse of your work. But before we get to the redemption of the curse of the fall that that hasn't happened yet, we need to see what the Lord God said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verses fifty, sixteen, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first time that the word commanded is used in Genesis. It's the first time that the word commanded is used in the Bible. This particular command is repeated twice more in Genesis 3, 11, and 17. But of the 25 times that this word commanded is used in Genesis, this is the only command that is coming directly from the Lord God as speech. It's a speech act of God. And the command here is is simply not to eat of the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one tree. That's it. Don't do it. The man is addressed here personally. Man is the only one out of all of God's creatures on earth who enjoyed personal relationship with him. So again, we don't know exactly what this means, that that what this, this tree means, but but we can conclude with certainty that, that eating the fruit of this tree would would provide man with a knowledge that was meant to belong to God alone. And that by obedience to this this command man was demonstrating his dependence on God and by disobedience, man would be, show, be attempting to be, to, to be independent of God, to be an autonomous creature. Now just think about those words for a second. Autonomous creature. It's an oxymoron. Those words do not go together. All creatures are necessarily dependent on God. But by man rebelling against God, he, is, he is, is, is rebelling, he is attacking God with his actions. He's attacking the character of God. He's attacking the person of God by rebelling against his commands. But again, that hasn't happened yet. It wouldn't take very long. But man, at this point, is still in his innocence. Again, the Lord God told the man, you are free to eat from every tree, every tree but one. Friends, freedom without limits is not freedom. Freedom without limits is not freedom. Some might wonder, well, if man wasn't allowed to eat from the tree, well, then why would God put the tree there in the first place? Why would God put a tree in the garden that would kill man or that could kill man? And and why didn't God, why didn't God keep man from access to the tree? Well, first of all, again, we can't charge God with, with, with being stingy. He's given man access to every tree in the garden except for that one tree. The tree is not there to tempt Adam because God tempts no one. If you come to my house and, and you're staying at my house, I, I can, I'll tell you that, that you can eat food, you can eat from, from any of the cupboards in the kitchen except for the one under the sink because that's where the cleaning supplies are kept. That's poison. Now, in, in your house... I trust, if you have young children, I trust that, that you, you somehow block your children from having access to that cupboard. We definitely do. We've had to call poison control four times on Owen. Once because he ate, um, uh, the, I ate berries from the ivy from the, uh, the uh, Virginia creeper in the yard. It found out that's poison. I didn't know that previously. Once for eating zinc. Once for pulling a detergent pod out of the, the dishwasher and licking it. And then most recently, for, for eating the seeds from a locust tree. Now, I didn't know at the time, but it turns out that the seeds of the black locust tree are very poisonous. Very poisonous. It got us, it, when, we, when we called poison control, it got us a ticket straight into the, into the, the emergency room. No waiting. But it turns out that the, the seeds of the, of the honey locust tree are harmless. So anyway, that's a little lesson in botany for you, but, but please don't judge my parenting. Um, hopefully we won't have to do that again, but, but if you're not gonna judge my parenting, you certainly should not judge God's parenting. You need to remember that Adam was not a child. Adam was not a child. You also need to remember that, that, that Adam, unlike our children, was able to not sin. Adam had an ability that our children don't have. Our children did not had the ability, apart from Christ, to obey. And so the fruit of that tree gave Adam the opportunity for worshipful obedience. Martin Luther likened the tree to Adam's church, and altar and pulpit. He, he said that here, Adam was, was to yield to God the obedience that he owed. He's able to give recognition to the word and to the will of God, to give thanks to God, and to call upon God for aid against temptation. And again, so you see how how how, how many uh, in the in Reformed circles see that the, the the garden pointed to the temple, which points ultimately to the the new heavens and the new earth. And again, we need to understand that the Lord God is a re- relational God, and the way that God relates to Man is through covenants. The 1689 Baptist Confession says that the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he's been pleased to express by way of covenant. So God's covenant is, With man is a continuation of his care. Well, what is a covenant? Lincoln Duncan defines defines a covenant as a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. Gordon Hugenberger, the, the Baptist theologian, expands on this. He says that explaining that a covenant is an elective as opposed to a natural family like relationship of obligation under divine sanction. And Hugenberger identifies five elements of covenants. Two parties. And one of whom is the divine witness. A historical prologue of of past blessings. Of stipulations or or rules. Of of sanctions. So it's, it's punishments for disobedience. Of a ratifying oath or a sign. And all of these are present in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We have the two parties. Adam and the Lord God as a witness, we have the historical prologue of, of past blessings in, in the preparation in the god 's preparation of the garden for man. we have the stipulations don 't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. we have the sanctions death and we have the ratifying oath and sign which is the tree of life so this covenant that that God made with Adam in the garden is often referred to by Reformed theologians as the covenant of works. And under the covenant of works, perfect obedience is required. Obedience means life, and disobedience means death. The covenant says, Do this, and you will live. R.C. Sproul explains that the covenant of works refers to the covenant that God made with, with Adam and Eve in their pristine purity before the fall in which God promised them blessedness contingent upon their obedience to his command. Under this covenant, man must do what he has been commanded to do in order to remain in the blessed state. It all depends on what man did. Now, this is not a way of salvation because man didn't need salvation at this point. He, he wasn't lost. Walt Chantry says that it was for a truly, the truly sinless and blessed man to continue in and to be confirmed in his blessedness. So, some would see this as a, <clears throat> as a form of a, a probationary period where, where Adam was promised that obedience would be rewarded with eternal life and disobedience would be punished with death. Again, obey and you will live. Disobey and you will die. John Owen taught that if, if Adam had been perfectly obedient to God, that Adam having worked would then enter into perfect rest, into heavenly rest. But that if Adam breaks the terms of the covenant, he will be cut off from rest, from satisfaction and the blessedness of God. And Owen says that a token of that promised rest is that God sanctifies the Sabbath and commands its remembrance and and its observation. So this covenant of works that God made with, with Adam in his innocence is contrasted with the covenant of grace. Again from R.C. Sproul. After the fall, the fact that God continued to promise redemption to his creatures who had violated the covenant of works is that ongoing promise of redemption is defined as the covenant of grace. End quote. So what what happens is that immediately after the fall, God institutes the covenant of grace. And all of the biblical covenants that follow from that covenant That covenant are all iterations of God's covenant of grace expanding and escalating to the covenant in Christ's blood. So in the state, in in the state of innocence in the garden, man had life, spiritual and physical life. Man had knowledge and righteousness. Man had communion with God. He had intimate, personal fellowship with God. Man had the ability not to sin. Would Adam obey or would he break the covenant? Well, we know that in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, that Adam, our federal head and a representative, would disobey. And as a result of his breaking that covenant, he did no evil. He did no evil. His mind was darkened, and so was his heart. And as a result, his communion with God would be broken. He would die, and death would spread to all of his posterity. Death would spread even to us. And what are the implications here for us? God has not made that covenant. Uh, of, of that God made that covenant of works with, with Adam. We've all broken that covenant. Every one of us have, have broken that covenant. We have followed in our first father's footsteps. And just like God created Adam and cared for Adam and commanded Adam, God, the Lord God has created you. He has cared for you. And he has commanded you. Because we have followed in in Adam's sin. Because we have all followed in Adam's sin. This covenant of works and our failure to to live up to the covenant of works leads us to the covenant of grace. Adam would forfeit his access to immortality by his immorality. The same is true of each of us. Adam would disobey and give death. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam, would give life to all who repent and believe in him. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the covenant of works. He's the only one who ever did. Christ finished the work that had been given. To him to do, and the merit of his entire life and work, and who satisfied all of the righteous requirements of the covenant of works, obtains the right for all of those who repent and believe in him, and so in Christ we escape the curse of that covenant. All of us were cursed under the covenant of works, but in the covenant of grace there is no curse. Because God did in Christ all that needed to be done. There were two trees in the garden the tree of life and the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's a third tree. There's a third tree the tree of death, the cross. And Jesus embraced the tree of death so that we now have access to the tree of life. The the death that we died in Adam could only be overcome by the death of Christ. Not only did Jesus obey the covenant of works, he also bore the consequences of the curse for Adam's disobedience to the covenant of works. So Adam... Our first father ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and forfeited his access to the tree of life. And we all followed after him. Adam's disobedience to the covenant of works would drive him out of the garden. Let it drive us to Christ. Let's pray together.